Chapter Eight of Three Years in the Federal Cavalry by Willard Glazier. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jonathan Limebrook of Lake Elsinore, California. Chapter Eight: Organization of a Cavalry Corps. Eighteen sixty-three. General Hooker assumes command of the Army of the Potomac. Demoralization. Reorganization. A cavalry corps. General George D. Stoneman in command. Death of Sergeant May. Forests of the Old Dominion. The cavalryman and his faithful horse. Scenes in winter quarters. Kilpatrick. His character. Qualifications of the True Soldier A New Horse A Mulish Mule Kilpatrick's Colored Servants in Trouble Terrific Hailstorm Major E. F. Cook Honored Colonel Clarence Buell On the 26th of January, General Joseph Hooker assumed command of the Army of the Potomac, whose vicissitudes and defeats have well-nigh broken its spirit and wiped out its efficiency. The patriotic fire is burning dimly in shrines where it has blazed brightly before. The tide of military life has possibly reached its lowest ebb, and the signs of the times are ominous of ill. Desertions are reported to be fearfully large. For this, many of our friends in the North are responsible. Not only do their letters speak discouraging words to the soldier, but many of them sent by express citizens' clothes, with which many of the boys quickly invest themselves, throwing away the blue, and thus disguised find their way to their false friends at home. I esteem him false to me, who would thus rob me of my honor. I would rather say, despoil me of my life, but my integrity never. Discouraging as all this depression of mind and dispersion of comrades may be, many still remain steadfast at their trust, and unflinchingly go ahead in the discharge of their duty. General Hooker's first work seems to be in the direction of checking this loosening of discipline and in reorganizing and strengthening the bands of military order as the infantry needed but little further solidification the commander-in-chief turned his attention to the cavalry in the possible efficiency of this arm of the service the general seems to have full faith but it is currently reported that the general has said that he has yet failed to see or hear of a dead cavalryman. Of course, this cannot be strictly true, for we could cite him multitudes, including our noble Bayard, whose bravery and sacrifice of themselves upon their country's altar are worthy of recognition at the hand of their commander. But it is quite evident that the cavalry has not yet come up to the beau ideal of the general. 
and indeed it has been a source of wonderment to us that while the efficiency of the infantry is known to depend largely upon its organization into brigades divisions and corps with their general commander the same may not be true of the cavalry general bayard the great cavalry chief of the army of the potomac during general burnside's administration made several efforts at consolidation resulting however in no very permanent changes it was reserved for general hooker to bring about the desired result and at last the cavalry corps of the army of the potomac is organized with general george d stoneman for its commanding officer by this change regiments which have been scattered here and there on detached service are brought together and made to feel the enthusiasm which numbers generally inspire especially when those numbers are united into a system with a living head whose intelligence and authority control the whole under this new regime some very beneficial changes have been wrought schools or camps of instruction have been established with a more rigid discipline than before and boards of examination with all the experience of the past before their eyes have been organized old and incompetent officers have been dismissed or have slunk away before this incisive catechism giving way generally to intelligent young and efficient men who placed at the heads of regiments and brigades give promise of success in the struggles that await us the rebel cavalry under stuart has long been organized into an efficient body which at times has sneered at our attempts to match them and yet they have been made to feel on some occasions that we are a growing power which time and experience may develop into something formidable but the general successes of the rebel army have made them all very insolent in the hope that final victory is already in their grasp february eleven my old friend and comrade sergeant theodore may of pittstown new york died this afternoon at two o'clock after a brief illness of typhoid fever which is a great scourge throughout the army the death of this valiant fellow-soldier casts a deep gloom over the entire command in which he has so faithfully served when we entered the army together at the organization of the regiment he came a perfect stranger but his gentle manners and soldierly deportment soon made for him hosts of warm friends by his gallantry on the field of battle as well as by the gentleness of his manners and his unblemished conduct in camp he has won the respect and even admiration of all who knew him the patriotic motives which induced sergeant may to quit his pleasant home in the beautiful valley of the tom hannock for the privations hardships and dangers of military life have always proved him to be a true and warm sympathizer in his country's cause it was evidently not the mere love of adventure or the mere pageantry or glory of war 
that led him to make the great sacrifice. He has been with us in every conflict, and shared with us the varied fortunes of the Harris Light. His death, which he would rather have met on the field of strife, battling manfully against traitors, was reserved for the calm and quiet of the camp, where he spent his last moments urging his comrades to cheer up and fight on, offering as his dying reason that our cause is just and must triumph. Such a death is a rich legacy to a command. He being dead yet speaketh. We would emulate his virtues. February 12. On recommendation of Lieutenant Frederick C. Lord, I was today appointed by Colonel Kilpatrick, first sergeant of Company E, Vice Henry Temple, promoted to sergeant major. My appointment is to date from the 1st of January, making me a very desirable New Year's gift, which I shall strive to honor. February 22. Snow has been falling uninterruptedly the livelong day, and yet the boys have been unusually merry, as they were wont to be on this anniversary before the war. Our celebration has been on a scanty scale, and yet we have felt the patriotic stimulus which comes from the great men and days of the past. And truly, the birth of the great Washington gives birth to many interesting thoughts, especially at this period of our history. A national salute has been fired from our fortifications on the Potomac, and the whole country round about us has been made to reverberate with the sound that welcomes in the day. But all these patriotic manifestations have not prevented the snowstorm and the cold. When we left our home in the north for what was termed the sunny south, we little expected to find such storms as this here. While the summers are much cooler than we expected to find them, the days being generally fanned by a beautiful sea breeze, the winters exceed for cold our highest expectation. The cold is not continuous, but very severe. We have seen the soft ground and water puddles freeze sufficiently in one night to bear a horse, and in several days and nights the frost has penetrated the earth several inches deep. The snowstorm of today is as severe as most storms experienced in the north. The wind has howled from the northwest, burdened with its cold, feathery flakes, which tonight lie at least twelve inches deep in places undisturbed. It is such a storm as our suffering pickets, and indeed our entire army, cannot soon forget. It may be that the vast forests of Virginia have much to do with its peculiar temperature. As we travel from place to place we are strongly impressed with the vastness of the wilderness, which covers thousands of acres of as fine arable soil as can be found on the continent. How different is this from the notions we had formed of the old dominion, 
while reading of its early settlements and of its great agricultural advantages. But when we look into its system of landowning and find that one individual monopolizes a territory sufficient for a dozen farms, and consequently neglects eleven-twelfths of his acres, and then look into its even worse system of labor, we need search no farther for the causes of this backwardness in agricultural pursuits. The implements made use of here on the plantations are such as were rejected by New England farmers over half a century ago, and the methods of cultivation are a century behind the times. Slavery and land monopoly are the incubus. Who does not sincerely hope that the time is not far distant when the rich acres of this great state shall be properly shared by its inhabitants, and when, freed from a burden and curse which have long paralyzed their energies, instinct with new life and enterprise, the people will realize the dignity of labor? Then will the almost interminable forests disappear, and in their stead the industrious yeoman will behold his rich fields of waving grain. Then, too, along the now comparatively useless streams and swift watercourses will spring up the factory and the mill, whose rolling wheels and buzzing spindles will bring wealth and prosperity to the nation. We are convinced, from what we have seen, that Virginia has water power enough to turn the machinery of the world. With these changes, the schoolhouse will be found by the side of every church, and intelligence and virtue will bless the home of the presidents. We have also many times been led to think, while lying in these chilly woods, that a greater warmth would be imparted to the atmosphere if the forest trees were felled and the land put under cultivation, a change sufficiently great to be appreciable throughout the state. Quote, Unchronicled heroes, end quote. Sunday, March 1. The usual Sunday morning inspection was omitted on account of rain. Rain, rain had fallen for many days almost incessantly. The regiment has been earnestly at work throughout the day in building stables for the horses, which have suffered greatly from being kept standing too long in the mud. Under these circumstances our horses are afflicted with the scratches, many of them so badly as to render them unserviceable and occasionally they lose their lives. By this cause and through hard work my little black mare, which I drew by lot at Camp Sussex in the autumn of 1861, has at last succumbed, and with a grief akin to that which is felt at the loss of a dear human friend, I have performed the last rite of honor to the dead. The Indian may love his faithful dog, but his attachments cannot surpass the cavalryman's for his horse. They have learned to love one another in the most trying vicissitudes of life, and the animal manifests affection and confidence 
quite as evidently as a human being could. The cavalier, it is true, is often compelled to drive at a most fearful rate, as when bearing hurried dispatches or making a charge, causing almost immediate blindness to the animal. Or, maybe, he continues on a march for many days and nights in succession, as on a raid, averaging at least sixty-five miles in twenty-four hours, with little water and less forage. Unable to remove the saddle, which has to be tightly bound, until the animal is so badly galled that the hair comes off with the blanket at its first removal. Sufferings like these often cause the death of a large proportion of a command, and to a careless looker-on these things would appear to be mere neglects. But these cruel military necessities only develop more perfectly the rider's sympathy for his suffering beast, and bind them in closer and more endearing bonds. Some men had rather injure themselves than to have their horses harmed, and the utmost pains are taken to heal them in case they are wounded. Each regiment has its veterinary surgeon, whose skill is taxed to the utmost in his branch of the healing art. Among the most touching scenes we have witnessed are those in which the mortally wounded horse has to be abandoned on the field of carnage. With tearful eyes the rider, and perhaps owner, turns to take a last look of the unchronicled hero, his fellow sufferer, that now lies weltering in his blood, and yet makes every possible effort to follow the advancing column. The parting is deeply affecting. Often the cavalryman finds no object to which he may hitch his horse for the night save his own hand, and thus with the halter fast bound to his grasp, he lies down with a stone, or perhaps his saddle for a pillow, his faithful horse standing as a watchful guardian by his side. At times the animal will walk around him, eating the grass as far as he can reach, and frequently arousing him by trying to gain the grass on which he lies. Yet it is worthy of note that an instance can scarcely be found where the horse has been known to step upon or in any way injure his sleeping lord. Such a scene the poet undoubtedly had in his mind when he sang, quote, The murmuring wind, the moving leaves, lulled him at length to sleep with mingled lullabies of sight and sound, end quote. Such experiences as these had taught me to love my faithful and true friend, but I found I was not the only man in the command who was bereaved of his first love. Only a few horses of the original number which we drew still remain, and several of them are either partially or totally blind, though yet serviceable. The hardships of the camp and the campaign are more destructive of animal than human flesh. Men are often sheltered from the storm when the horses are exposed, and the men are sometimes fed when the horses have to go hungry. 
In battle, the horse is a larger mark than the man, and hence is more frequently hit, so that more than twice the number of horses fall in every engagement than men. The cavalryman is more shielded from the deadly missile than the infantryman. The horse's head and shoulders will often receive the bullet which was intended for the rider's body. This is true also of the elevated portions of the saddle, with the rolls of blankets and coats and a bag of forage. A difference has also been noticed between the casualties in cavalry and infantry regiments under equal exposure. This difference is wholly explained when we consider the jolting and swift motion of the man as his horse leaps forward in the fray, making him a very uncertain mark for the enemy. Bright Days March 3. This is the first bright day we have seen in more than three weeks. The mud around our camps, especially in the neighborhood where we water our horses, is terrible, and the roads are almost bottomless. However, long trains of forage and commissary wagons may be seen passing to and fro, with horses and mules in mud from stem to stern. Cavalcades of mudded horses and riders traverse the camps and adjoining fields in various directions. Large flocks of crows, the most soldier-like bird in the world, with their high-perched vedettes when alighted, and their military line of march when on the wing, afford some lessons of diversion and instruction. It would seem as if all the ravens of the United States had congregated here, having been attracted by the carrion of battlefields and the refuse of camps. Turkey buzzards, birds which are always on the wing, and that none of us ever yet saw alighted, wheel through the air like eagles, gazing down upon us with seeming defiance. The sights are of daily occurrence. Kilpatrick. Today, several details were made from the regiment for brigade headquarters, where Kilpatrick, the senior colonel in the brigade, now commands. In the afternoon, we raised the stars and stripes in front of his tent, after which three cheers were given for the flag and three for the Union. Kilpatrick was then called upon for a speech and responded in his usually felicitous style. He is certainly an orator as well as a warrior. He speaks, too, as he fights, with dash and daring. What he has to say, he says with such perspicuity that no one doubts his meaning. Frequently there are flashes of eloquence worthy of a Demosthenes. His voice and diction seem to be well-nigh faultless. His speech today elicited frequent outbursts of applause, and the men cheered him enthusiastically at the close, and left his quarters with a deeper affection for him than before. Strict as he is to enforce discipline, and thorough, yet he is not severe, and the men love him for his personal attention to their wants 
and for his appreciation of their labors. If he gives us hard work to do in march or battle, he endures or shares with us the hardship. If by the losses of men he has sustained, he is truly entitled to the nickname of Kill Cavalry, which has been quite generally accorded to him. His men know that these casualties have fallen out in the line of duty, in bold enterprises that cost the enemy dearly, the wisdom of which will ever exculpate our loved commander from the imputation of rashness, which, by uninformed parties, he is sometimes charged. In preparation for and during a battle, none can excel him. His plans are quickly made and executed, while all possible contingencies seem to have been foreseen. His selection of positions and disposition of forces always exhibits great sagacity and military genius. He generally holds his men under perfect control. His clarion voice rings like magic through the ranks, while his busy form, always in the thickest of the fight, elicits the warmest enthusiasm. His equanimity of mind seems never to be overcome by his celerity of motion, but are equally balanced. Rarely is so great prudence found blended with so undaunted courage. He has an indomitable will that cannot brook defeat. The word impossible he never knows. Whatever difficulties intervene between him and duty. He feels like Napoleon, quote, that impossible is the adjective of fools, end quote. Added to all these mental qualifications is that perfect physique which makes Kilpatrick the model soldier. As an equestrian, we have never seen his superior. He rides as though he had been made for a saddle. Rocks, stumps, fallen trees, brooks, and fences are nothing before him. His well-trained steeds understand him perfectly, and are never at a loss to know what is meant by the sharp spurs on their sides, whatever obstacles stand in their path. We have seen him leap over barriers where only few could follow him. To accomplish such feats, the horse must have confidence in the rider, as well as the rider in the horse. While in a charge, Kilpatrick has more the appearance of an eagle pouncing upon his prey than that of a man pouncing upon a man. Then, too, he has a wonderful power of endurance. Though somewhat slender in form and delicate in mould, with complexion and eyes as light as a maiden's, yet it would seem as though his bones were iron and his sinews steel, while the whole is overlaid with gold. He is certainly compactly built. He has undoubtedly his faults, but his men fail to see them, so that to them he is as good as perfect. What so young a champion of the right may yet achieve for his country is a matter of much hopeful conjecture among us. He is now only twenty-five years of age, 
having had his birth in the beautiful valley of the Clove, in northern New Jersey, in 1838. He entered the Military Academy at West Point on the 20th of June, 1856, and graduated with honors in 1860, just in time to be ready for the great conflict then impending. He was present at Baltimore when the mob endeavored to stop the trains for Washington, and the blood of Massachusetts men was spilt upon the streets. He there exhibited that bold intrepidity which has ever characterized his actions. He was wounded at the Battle of Big Bethel, one of the first engagements of the war, where as a lieutenant he commanded Duryea Zouaves, June eleventh, eighteen sixty one. He had just recovered from his wound when he entered upon the organization of the Harris Light and became its lieutenant colonel. March five. We had regimental drill at the usual time this morning. I rode my black pony recently drawn in place of my little black mare deceased. This was his first experience in cavalry discipline, and I infer that the men in the front rank of the platoon, which I commanded, hoped it might be his last entry, for it must have been most emphatically evident to those who followed him that he was determined to introduce a new system of tactics, in which heels were to go up in no gentle manner at every change of movement. He is certainly the most ungovernable horse on drill I ever mounted, and nothing but long marches and raids can effectually subdue his kicking propensities. I am encouraged, however, with the consideration that such fiery metal, when properly controlled and molded, is usually very valuable. The rain fell so fast on the 6th that we were prevented from drill and recall was sounded immediately after drill call. Sunday, March 8th. Details from the regiment were ordered out on picket. The night had been stormy, but the day has been lovely. At such times, were it not for the mud, we would feel that we are very comfortably circumstanced. On the 11th, in the morning, the ground was covered with snow which had fallen in the night. A brilliant sun soon dissolved the pure mantle and left us in much mire. But our attention was diverted from the going by a novel scene which we were called to witness in camp. The regiment was instructed in the best method of packing a mule by one who has had experience in the business. The most mulish mule in the whole braying family was selected for the operation, and if we did not have some tall fun, I will admit that I am no judge. A hog on ice, or a bristling porcupine are bad enough, but an ugly mule outstrips them all. It seems as if the irascible animal tried to do his prettiest, flouncing around in a most laughable manner, pawing and kicking at times furiously. But the desperate Yankee teacher was not to be outwitted, and conquered him at last, when the pack was satisfactorily poised, and the ornamented mule
was promenaded about camp as in triumph. We are informed that it is the intention of the authorities to have pack mules used in the cavalry corps henceforward in place of army wagons. The reason of this change seems to be to facilitate rapid movements or forced marches. It is the prevailing opinion, however, that the experiment will prove a failure. Too many mules would be required for this purpose, and our forage and rations would be very insecure, especially from the storms. But we will see how the thing works. At times it may be expedient. March 12. I had the misfortune to have my quarters burned this morning while getting out a detail for picket. All my extra clothing, equipments, and some little mementos or valuables were speedily converted into ashes. But I immediately went to work, and with some kind assistance, which every brother soldier is ready to bestow, I put up a new establishment which in every respect is superior to the old. Our homes, it is true, are easily destroyed, but they are as easily replaced. March 13. Details from the regiment with pack mules were sent out to the Rappahannock to carry rations and forage to our pickets. The mule train looks oddly enough, and yet through these muddy roads it seems to be a necessity. March 14. Today I am doing regimental guard duty. The guard has been not a little amused by the arrest of Kilpatrick's colored servants. It was their misfortune to be discovered by Captain Southard, the officer of the day, while engaged in a fierce contest in which their heads were used as the chief weapons of attack and defense. The blows they dealt upon each other were most terrible, reminding one of the battering rams of old, used for demolishing the walls of forts or cities. Such ancient modes of warfare, of course, could not be tolerated here, especially as no order for battle had been promulgated from headquarters and the captain arrested the offenders and brought them to the guard-house, where they were placed in my charge. I immediately ordered them out under guard to police camp as a punishment for their bad conduct. While thus engaged, Kilpatrick happened to see them, and not wishing to have his faithful servant subjected to such humiliating labor, issued an order for their immediate release from Durrance Vile, asserting that he would be responsible for their fighting in the future, if at least they did not put their heads together more than half a dozen times a day. The day following this laughable farce in the afternoon, we experienced one of the most terrific storms ever known in this part of the country. The day had been quite pleasant, until about two o'clock, when dark clouds began to obscure the sky, and the wind shifted from the south to the northwest. At four o'clock the elements were ready for battle, and a fierce engagement commenced. Gleaming and forked lightnings cleft the canopy, 
while booming thunder shook the trembling earth. The artillery of heaven had not long been opened before the musketry commenced, and down poured a shower of hail, which came near demolishing our tents, and brought suffering and sorrow upon all unsheltered heads. Mules brayed horribly, vying with the hoarse muttering thunder, making the camp most hideous and lonely. The wind and cold increased with every passing hour. The hail fell faster and more heavily, and night came suddenly down to hide, though not to prevent, the storm. The night was one of great suffering, especially on the lines of picket. It was bad enough, anywhere. March 23 a beautiful sabre was presented to Major E. F. Cook this afternoon by the members of his old company for his gallantry and soldierly character which have earned his promotion. Captain O. J. Downing of Company B made the presentation speech, in which he beautifully alluded to the happy relation which always exists between a faithful commander and his men. As a token that such relation existed between the Major and those whom he had often led through perilous scenes and conflicts, their gift was presented. An appropriate response was made by the Major, in which he very humbly attributed his military success thus far to the bravery of the noble men who had always stood by him and whose gift he accepted not only as a mark of their appreciation of himself as a man, but of their devotion to the cause which he hoped, by the edge of the sabre and trust in Providence, we may yet win. March 24 Kilpatrick's brigade was reviewed this morning by General Gregg, who commands the 2nd Division of the Cavalry Corps. Kilpatrick commands the 1st Brigade, which is composed of the 1st Maine, the 10th New York, and Harris Light. On the 25th, General Gregg again reviewed us. We were ordered to turn out in heavy marching orders, that is, with all our clothing, rations, forage, or grain, and fully equipped. For some reason, inspections and reviews are frequent of late. The Harris Light maintains its established reputation as being second to none in the Corps for its efficiency in drill and discipline and in its general appearance. The men take pride in keeping up the morale of the regiment. March 28th. Colonel Clarence Buell is paying us a visit today. This gallant and noble officer who organized and formerly commanded the Troy Company of the Harris Light, has recently been promoted to the colonelcy of the 169th New York Infantry. The colonel has taken temporary leave of absence from his new command for the purpose of making us a friendly call, and he is again surrounded by his old tried friends and comrades. Company E hails with pleasure its former loved captain, and though sad at his loss, still rejoices in his well-earned and merited promotion. 
all the men of the company showed their respect and admiration for him by falling into line upon the announcement of his arrival in camp, and thus greeted the Christian soldier. It was a very delightful and enjoyable occasion. As a soldier, Colonel Buell stands among the bravest and the best. Always attentive to the wants of his command, his men are always the last to be out of supplies of rations or clothing. He generally exercised that fatherly care over us, which called forth in return a filial love. He is dignified, and yet perfectly affable. As a commander, he is intrepid and cool, and manages his troops with admirable skill. He possesses a naturally well-balanced mind, thoroughly cultivated, and a heart always full of Christian hopefulness and benevolence. We wish him great success in his new field of labor and responsibility. End of chapter 8